This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, do you remember the before times? Because we had an interview back in March with someone that we never aired and we, you know, dusted it off for this week's episode and I'm excited to revisit it. They were such, they were, it was like days of innocence. I was so much younger back then in early March. I, I, I miss you. I miss you. I really do. <laughs> I know. It I will be people. normal again someday. <laughs> yeah. uh, so our guest is uh, Tim Clift of InvestNet. And we found him through actually Morgan Barna, who's in Bloomberg Intelligence and is an analyst with you. And I, Morgan flagged him because he's got this huge team of research analysts who help him have this platform that interfaces with more than 100,000 advisors, which I thought was really interesting because we always talk about products and ETFs, but we don't talk about platforms that much. Yeah, I think for somebody who isn't in the business, uh, a good way to put it would be like, the platform is sort of like the Costco or Whole Foods for advisors. So if you have an advisor that you use, they, especially one that doesn't, that has broken away from the sort of wirehouses, like the Merrill's or UBS's and is on their own independent, they would use an investnet to shop for individual ETFs, funds, or packages of them um, in a sort of wholesale manner. So what's interesting to me about this conversation in regards to what's going on now in the market is we've seen more and more these, the way we watch flows all the time, and we're seeing more and more that uh, models are impacting the flows. You can tell when a model says, you know what, we're shifting out of, you know, inflation protected securities into corporates or out of equities and into bonds, you can see it in the flows. And so more and more as these ETFs make it into these models, which are put on the shelf at these uh, proverbial Costco or Whole Foods, uh, the more the flows are impacted by what the models do. And the models can be tactical, trading a lot, or strategic, which don't move all that much. And this guy, Tim, is basically sits right in the middle. He's like the gatekeeper of the funds that get on. He also works on making the models and there's outside people who make the models. So it's a little inside baseball, but I think it's a really interesting um, look into how the sort of intermediary channel of ETF flows and investing works. So just to give you some scale, uh, you know, Investnet, this company has about $75 billion in ETF assets. That's about 2% of all ETF assets. So it's not huge, but it's sizable but they're, they have 30% growth year over year. And what's also interesting is that the, in ETF models though, could be something like 200 to 300 billion. So getting closer to 10%. So again, I think that's the chunk we're really gonna focus on today. But EvestNet is, uh, like I said, a, a portion of that chunk uh, in terms of how they fit into the bigger picture. So again, Tim Clift of EvestNet, this was recorded in mid-March before our office went on lockdown. So it sounds especially great because we're not all in closets. And special thanks to Morgan Barna for helping make this episode happen. 
Yeah, by the way, that's funny you bring that up because remember we wondered which of those ETFs that we pitched in the ETF tank episode? About 10 of us all pitched products we thought should exist, and we wondered who would be the first to market. And Morgan's won. Uh, she pitched a online betting ETF, and it is now a reality, B-E-T-Z. And it's an instant hit. It's already got $67 million, came out of the gate pretty strong. So congratulations to her. Even though I won in that competition with Xmon, the X Mondays ETF, she won the real one. This time on Trillion, investing with InvestNet. Tim, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having me. So what do you do at InvestNet? I wear a lot of different hats, but my primary responsibility is for research and portfolio management for the organization. So we have a team of analysts that do research on mutual funds, ETFs, all sorts of different investment products, and then make recommendations to financial advisors um, and to our own portfolio managers that will build model portfolios. Eric thinks you're Whole Foods. How do you describe yourself? I think that's a great description. You know, you know, we could be Thank also you. the Amazon. You yeah, know, the, owned by <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but we we are uh, a big open architecture platform, so we don't we don't necessarily start from a curation standpoint. We open our doors to just about everybody, but we do have teams in house that help advisors and organizations get that list smaller. And I think that the real important thing for people here to understand who might be retail investors themselves is advisors, wealth managers, they don't necessarily do it all themselves. They will outsource a lot of things. So just talk to us about the shoppers at your, quote, platform. The people who use them are advisors. What are they getting from you and and how are ETFs involved? Yeah, historically, advisors, a lot of their practice was built around them building their own models. And I think over time, they've understood or have figured out that that's maybe not the best use of their time, that they really need to spend more time with their clients putting together financial plans. So who can I pay to make these problems go away? And that's you. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, the, the advisors now are saying, well, maybe it makes sense for this segment of my business just to go into model portfolios. They all have very different appetite for risk, different time horizons. But within the model structure, you can actually fit a lot of different people into a limited number of model portfolios that will make sense for those. Okay, so model portfolio, model structures, what, is that, what does any of that mean? So think of a model portfolio as a selection of mutual funds or ETFs. Now, ETFs are the ones that are growing the fastest um, with different risk tolerances. So maybe you have three, five, ten different mutual funds or ETFs in the portfolio, and those will change over time as the economy changes or the, the direction of the goals of the client change. But it's a it's a set portfolio of of these underlying securities. And, and are these tailored for me as an individual or are they more off-the-shelf products? So they start off relatively off-the-shelf. So there may be seven or ten um, in a, a risk spectrum, so from very conservative to very aggressive. And there may be tax-efficient versions of those. Uh, but there's also tools you can set on top of these model portfolios. So you could say, well, I want to have a, an ESG or an impact component to it, or I want to add a income infusion to it. So you, you can do some customization to these, but by and large, they start off at least as, as um, um, structured, pro- structured individual portfolios. Most people out there know the 60-40, 60% equity, 40% bonds, and you could do that with two ETFs now. 
I'm assuming, you know, if you were to describe one of these portfolios, I know you can't say tickers. Um, we'll we'll say them for you if we need to. But uh, go through what one might look like. Is it, you know, 50, 30, 10? Like, what's going on here? Uh, what's an example of one? What's that, the composition? That, that somebody, what yeah. would you put Joel in, basically? <laughs> yeah, so there, there are very simple ones, and, and sometimes those will just be for a low-cost solution. So, you, you know, you can come into these model portfolios with $5,000 and get into a model portfolio, but that's only going to have a couple of different tickers to it. Um, the larger the cases and the more diversified the portfolio, you might have 10 or 15, but they'll d- generally have certainly equity and fixed income and international exposure. In some cases, they will have um, alternatives exposure in them too. Um, in some cases, these are almost set it, forget it, like strategic models where they don't change much at all over time. And others that may be more tactical and move in and out of the markets a little bit more and be more flexible with what's going on in the, uh, in the environment. How would model portfolios help with rebalancing? How, how would that help the advisor community? So with model portfolios, you are outsourcing all the selection part of it, but also the rebalancing part of the portfolio. So every time um, the market moves significantly, that rebalancing will happen either from a manager standpoint or InvestNet and our platform will do that. We can set it up and say, well, let's just do it every quarter or once a year or when it hits a certain tolerance and, and it, it moves outside of that risk spectrum that you signed up for. So it seems to me, and you know, the recent sell-offs we've been seeing, we have seen a lot of the core ETFs from Vanguard, like IVV and VU and IEFA and VEA, continue to take in money during the sell-offs. Correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like model portfolios are part of what, where the flows are coming from, despite the market conditions. Advisors say, hey, look, we're going to put a, we're going to just use this model, done. Now I'm going to spend all my time right now coaching this investor to not sell. Uh, and that's their big value add now. Now they don't have to spend their time as much doing that. Is that kind of what's going on now and what explains some of the flows into these ETFs despite the market um, in, on it, some violent days, actually? It, it is. I mean, these are, these are much stickier assets. And, and by and large, they're part of a financial plan. So the advisor sat down with a the client. They've gone through this long, the long-term goals for the client. And they're saying, this makes the most sense for you. We are not going to jump in and jump out of the market every time something scary happens temporarily. Long t- these are long-term holdings. If you need short-term assets, put it somewhere else. These models are really here to you know, generate income over time and to grow over time. And so you don't, you don't see those flows nearly as much as individual uh, tickers. And what kind of time horizon are you typically talking about there? Yeah, the time horizons might be 10 years, 15, 20, 30, you know, all the way through retirement. So it could be a 50-year time horizon on, on many of these models. Can I throw a theory at, at, at you that I've been thinking about? There's this general feeling that, like, okay, ETFs are going to hurt the market because all these people are going to run at, when something gets tough, and there'll be, like, only one door. Like, everybody, they'll say, everybody's going to try to run out the same exit door. Um, it seems like every single sell-off, we see the same thing. We see the ETFs tend to take in net flows as do index mutual funds, which are passive. It seems to me, traditionally, those are younger clients and more coached clients by these advisors. Now, mutual funds, people were put in there by a broker who got paid from the mutual fund, so less loyalty, and traditionally boomers, who may have a shorter time horizon. Could we be looking at a a situation for the next at least 15, 20 years where sell-offs are more about mutual funds having to sell and being under severe pressure rather than the passive side. Is that something you can speak to from where you sit? Uh, uh, yes. Um, he I, wrestles I, with big theories. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a big theory. I, and, and I don't want 
I want anyone to think that we're not going to see outflows out of ETFs too as markets get you know struggle. I, I just think that you may not have as much fluidity. I, I think the the um, the the way the um, trend has been, it's really more uh, a function of cost. So you know, I think that's where ETFs are have have an advantage, and we've seen by and large advisors more and more focused when they're putting portfolios together for their clients. There's much more fee pressure. So anytime they meet with a brand new client and they're in a mutual fund model, very often they're going to be recommending an ETF model or a, or a blended model for their client to reduce the cost. Because we know that particularly in down markets, additional costs are just going to eat away and corrode at your, uh, at your returns. But the person who sought out the ETF is they bought it. They weren't put in it. And I think that's important because usually that person also is a uh, student of behavioral finance as well and has long-term mentality, understands, as we say, they're chasing patience, not performance. And so I think that anyone that's going into these models, I think that's absolutely true, that there's, there, we're not going to see a lot of that friction and movement in and out. But I also think you know ETFs are, are being used from, from a hedging vehicle, and, and because you can intraday trade them, there, there is going to be some movement there. But I think in the, in the models, for sure, when we don't see nearly the outflows that we'd see in other asset classes. Yeah, given the interest you're seeing in ETF-only model portfolios, you know, what is your take on the new active non-transparent funds coming to market? Do you think you know, part of the appeal is that they fit into an ETF-only model portfolio? You know, what is your sort of take on Yeah, I think that's pretty exciting, the, the non-transparent um, ETFs that are, that are moving into the, the marketplace. It'll, it'll allow those traditionally beta-only or just you know, tracking the market type of portfolios to have the ability to outperform. And it, and it gets a lot of really smart portfolio managers into that space, basically moving their traditional mutual fund models into this ETF structure that's more tax sensitive and just a, a more efficient vehicle, lower cost. Right. It obviously forces the collapse of the uh, multi-share class, right? They're going to they're gonna be a single share class. They're probably going to be priced, I mean, looks like a little bit closer to the institutional costs of, of the mutual fund. Eric and I, you know, have we've talked about there's a clear interest in, in why fund issuers are moving this direction. Um, in part, a lot of these you know strategies have seen outflows. But is there really going to be demand? I mean, do you see demand from the advisors acting for asking for more active strategies or asking for ETF only model portfolios that have a better mix of active and passive? Yeah, so they're I, they're not asking for the non-transparent ETFs yet. I think once they're more broadly available in the marketplace and they've proven themselves out so that the, the bid asks are, are tight and the APs can actually create the shares that they need to to, to, to make that market efficient, I think the assets will, will flow. Um, we're already seeing the active-passive blends but they're not necessarily the non-transparent active-passive. So the best of both worlds, right? You can have smart beta, you can have alpha combined, you get the, you know, when the markets go down, sometimes, you know, the um, uh, active managers can be a little bit more nimble. So maybe those combined make a lot more sense. So we have advisors building their practice around building active passive portfolios. So I think once the non-transparents get in there, it gives a lot more choice. And again, you get some benefits of that structure. I do think some of the worry that we will hear with models sometimes is and we see it with the flows. A lot of the flows do go into the like the S and P one, you know, VU or IVV, 
and then the MSCI EFA one or the FTSE, and they're very similar. The EM one, which is very similar, either it's MSCI or FTSE. We call it the core wars or the ag, the ag or BND, which is the aggregate bond index. Um, is there any risk to everybody by basically hooking into the same portfolio pound for pound? Because from the flows, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of differentiation. But then when you meet with an issuer, they will say that they're a niche issuer, that they can provide an advisor with differentiation. Um, and so, but and we see some of that, but largely it just seems like the, all the money is going into the same sort of four ETF categories. And we're seeing that too. So your your traditional strategic model has those core elements to it, and that's where eighty percent of the flows are going into those just those those asset classes. So there, you know, can potentially be some concern around liquidity for those products if there tends to be movement all all at the same time. But we also, the issuers and the models that are providing those are the biggest ones uh, out there. So, that, you know, we have certain criteria around how many assets they have to have, how, how long they've been doing this. Um, so we're not as concerned about the liquidity part of it as, as, um, as we would be for a brand new startup. The other thing we're seeing is that advisors are saying, all right, we're going to take that core, but we're going to build around it. So we're going to say, you know, we've got the, the, the core four asset classes, and now we're going to add an income boost for my retirement clients. So there's another model portfolio. Like that, condiments. <laughs> Sprinkle a little rel- like, relish and mustard like some on the side. ketchup on the hot dog. <clears throat> Just, that's what Joel likes. Exactly. <laughs> I like the relish, too. So, so they'll, they'll, they'll start building around it and saying, you know, we want a, want a little more income in this portfolio, or we want some different variation. I want liquid alternatives in there somehow so that we can have some downside protection, whatever it might be. So your co- your clients are basically advisors, right? And we're seeing tons more wealth managers sort of break off and do their own advisor shop. What do you think the the potential of your business looks like here as you see more and more of these advisors competing with one another? Um, and, and what kind of opportunity and strategic growth do you see in the near term? Yeah, I think, you know, we only see upside right now. The, the number of advisors that are moving into the model portfolios and out of you know, old old commission products, or or actually just doing it all themselves. The organizations they work for don't necessarily want them doing that anymore. They'd much rather have um, the compliance structure. They'd rather have it outsourced to these enormous firms that have a lot of resources, rather than having an advisor just going and picking and choosing on their own. You know, if 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 it, it comes down to some litigation, if they have all this backup that's been done, that's a, a much safer place to be than than doing it themselves. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
you service independent advisors. And, you know, when you talk about Merrill, UBS, and these bigger networks of FAs where they have to sort of subscribe to the Merrill, do you find people defect from there and become independent and then you're kind of where they would go to use something similar? Yeah, we, we see a lot of advisors, once their practice gets big or they want a, more independence, that they move over to the InvestNet platform. That that is that is a common trend. We've seen that for many many years, and you know, one we want to make sure we have at least the tools and products available that uh, they have where they're coming from. So that was one of the um, ideas behind InvestNet and why it was started to actually give independent advisors the same tools and resources that uh, somebody from the wires would have. But that is that is a, a continuing trend we've seen. So where are you at with assets now, and where do you think you're going to get? So we're at a little over uh, $3 trillion in total assets on the platform. Um, and as far as discretionary assets, uh, where, where we're involved in the actual trading and, and is about $200-plus uh, billion. And we're growing um, double digits for sure every year. And the models business is growing over 30% year over year. Models. Models. I think we're going to come back to this topic. <laughs> Great. Repeatedly. And here's a question I have. So um, you're 5% owned by BlackRock. They, they, took, they bought a small piece of you back in the day, right? Yes. And we've tracked this theme that we call getting closer to the customer. The is- ETF issuers are looking at the writing on the wall. They're like, man, everybody wants everything for four basis points. <laughs> Those advisor fees over there look pretty juicy. They're 1%. And I'm not saying BlackRock's doing this per se, but like Vanguard's launched an advisory service. So has Schwab. That's the game. That is the game. And it feels like the they're all trying to own the, the get as close as they can to the advisor. That guarantees flows into their funds. And some of them are actually becoming advisors. So from your perch, how are you seeing that trend develop? Yeah, I think all the providers want to have strategic relationships with all the the gatekeepers or, or the the um, the big providers, and and, and BlackRock's no different. And you know, I, I don't want to say what they are doing is just for distribution. The reason they did the investment it was just slightly under five percent, but it was more for um, technology. So they have a lot of really cool technology tools that they wanted to embed into our platform to make you know um, advice much more streamlined and simple. So they've, they've got some really simple tools that advisors can kind of take shortcuts and get, get to either models that they want um, or they, they can get advice that they want. So that was really the, the reason for that. It, it, you know, but the closer they can get to, to us, and that, that's not just BlackRock, but that's all the providers, um, you know, the, the more, um, th- that's really where distribution is coming from these days. And, you know, it's not lost on us too how much data exists in in the likes of, of those end investors. And on mass, when you serve, you know, about a third of the advisory community, you know, rolled up, that's a lot of insight for, you know, fund issuers uh, who are trying to sort of go where the puck is, is going. Yeah, I think from, uh, you're right, data is a big thing for us. Yeah. And we have a lot of data on all those 100,000 advisors, but all the trends of the the flows that we're seeing from all the different asset managers. So for those, and we make that information available to the asset managers so they can be much more targeted when they're going after um, new assets and they know which advisors are selling more of their products and how many proposals are being run every day from uh, on their individual securities. And so that instead of from a retail standpoint, just trying to 
put out commercials in trying to, you know, blanket everywhere, they can be very targeted on, you know, different organizations and figure out, you know, where, where am I best using my resources. Uh, let's talk about the models that are, you said there's over a thousand available, right, on the platform? So there's there's 150 providers, asset managers that have about 1,500 right. individual models on the platform. Um, the hundred, so BlackRock's one of those, right? Yes. Um, okay, and then you've got companies that like uh, CLS that only does this, where th- right. The, also, there's models that are for long term, but then there's models that are are trying to outperform, right? Like a fund of funds, is that right? And do you have like a separate section in the proverbial food store for the alpha generating <laughs> ones versus the long term ones? Yeah. So uh, when we're working with uh, an enterprise and they want to set up models, they're not going to turn on all 150 organizations' models in that 1500. They're going to say. All right, we want uh, a low-cost solution. We want an income solution. We want a strategic solution. We want a tactical solution. We want an ESG solution. And they may end up with five, six, ten different types of solutions that all have several different model portfolios attached to it. So it really depends on the distribution chain, the type of advisors that they have, what the demand is. And so we help them curate that list down to something that's, that's more reasonable so the advisors don't have overwhelming choice. What other trends in ETFs do you think warrant discussion? A couple of areas that I think we're seeing trends that are, are very strong right now. We talk about ETF models. Um, in some cases, they're open architecture models. So we'll have a third party picking the best ETFs that are out there. But more and more, our, our top two um, organizations and flows are all coming from firms that are only using their proprietary ETFs. So they're, you know, they may not have a selection that's... A, you know, completely broad and can cover all the different areas, um, but it's cheap, right? And and there's no management fee on top of it. So our advisors look at those models as the free ones. So they don't have to pay a management fee, just the underlying expenses on those models. So those, from a cost standpoint, are very attractive. They know the brand names of these big uh, ETF shops. So they're happy to to make those available to their clients. So the, the free, I think, is one of the, the big trends we're seeing right now. Yeah, no. Bank of New York is rolling out uh, ETFs, and one of them is zero point zero zero percent. JP Morgan's is two basis points. I mean, people are just get, look in the future. Everybody's going to expect their the core at least of their portfolio to be pretty much free, mm. right? Yeah. So, so you know what I, I'm talking about is uh, a management fee on top. Right? Oh, right. So traditionally, a lot of the like in other words, were... they would waive that because you're putting it into their funds. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Which so. would probably include some of the non-free ones. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But fair enough, though. But, but you're right. There's it's still also cheap. the underlying is you know raised to zero. So if your your underlying costs are 12 basis points or 14 basis points, you know that's hard to compete with. This is a hard question, but you know, do you think it's it's concerning either overall or or for your business as well? Just the share that BlackRock and Vanguard have of of passive act uh, of passive management. And I don't. I don't think it's a concern. You know, I think it. It would be. It's a hard entrance point. There's barriers to entry if you just want to go after low cost strategic ETF models. Right. They. They have a lot of resources. They're doing a very good job in that space. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity for other ETF manufacturers to you know look at smart beta models or ESG models or, or whatever it might be that you know that there aren't great options out there in the, in the space for. So they're they're big. They're doing a good job of it. They've got lots of liquidity. They've got lots of support. You know, I, I'm not concerned about that at this point. 
And one other one, you know, you have obviously a huge research team. How are your capabilities going to have to change with sort of maybe more evaluation of active managers? Yeah, that, that's something we have been um, working on a lot lately. Um, so traditionally, we've done more quantitative screening for traditional ETFs. But now as you're moving into multi-factor ETFs, you're moving into these non-transparent ETFs, you really have to have somebody looking deep under the hood to understand how that structure works. And so when we're making recommendations, it's it's not just you know looking at these three or five different factors. We actually have to understand the team better, just like you would on a traditional mm-hmm. mutual fund or the old school, mm-hmm. you know, asset managers. That's you know what is their investment philosophy? How how is it working? So it's it's certainly evolving, and our resources are are shifting more onto the ETF side from a research standpoint. Tim, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Great, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Morgan at mbarna6. And you can follow InvestNet at ENV Intel. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.